Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vesten befinder sig i øjeblikket i et verdenshistorisk eksperiment. Det handler om krig og fred. Det handler om liv og død. Det handler om kampen mod Vladimir Putin. Vesten har nemlig som reaktion på Putins invasion af Ukraine den 24. februar lavet det største regime af sanktioner i verdenshistorien mod Rusland. Vi gjorde det i første omgang for at straffe Vladimir Putin. Nu er vi blevet en del af krigen mod Rusland. Det er blevet vores måde at føre krig mod Rusland på. Det er det enorme batteri af sanktioner, som vi bliver ved med at udvide, og som der er meget stor opbakning til. Men hvad ved vi egentlig om sanktioner? Hvornår virker sanktioner? Og hvornår virker sanktioner imod hensigten? Hvad skal der til, for at sanktioner realiserer det mål, man gerne vil opnå? Og hvorfor var det, at sanktioner i 1930'erne faktisk var med til at radikalisere fascisterne i Italien, nazisterne i Tyskland, og de sanktioner, der skulle stoppe krigen, de endte med at eskalere krigen, gøre den mere voldsom og mere brutal. Og de sanktioner, som vi tidligere har indført mod store stater og autoritære ledere, har tit endt med at gøre staterne endnu mere autoritære og skabt endnu større opbakning til de autoritære ledere. Så det helt store spørgsmål lige nu, det er, hvad er det, vi opnår med den økonomiske krig, vi er gået i gang med, som der ikke er særlig stor diskussion om, som vi ikke kender succeskriterierne for, og som vi ikke har besluttet os, hvordan vi kommer ud af. Jeg kender ingen bedre end den hollandske historiker Nicolas Molder til at besvare det spørgsmål. Nicolas Molder, som er professor i europæisk historie ved Cornell University, har skrevet den væsentligste bog overhovedet om de økonomiske sanktioners historie. Den udkom tidligere på året. Den hedder The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of War. Nicolas Molder er sammen med Quinn Slobodian og Adam Tews, som vi også tidligere har talt med her i Langsomme Tamtaler, en del af en ny generation af kritiske historikere, som ser på det 20. århundredes idehistorie, ser på forholdet mellem liberalisme og krig, ser på forholdet mellem kapitalisme og demokrati, i det århundrede, som vi forlod for 20 år siden. Hans store historiske studie har vist sig at være den helt ideelle baggrund til at forstå, hvad det er for en krig, vi har rådet os ud i i dag. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially it's not good evening but hello to you Nicolas Molder who's with us from I think Ithaca upstate New York Cornell University isn't that right Yes thank you very much for having me Rune Jeg håber i får lige så stor fornøjelse ud af at lytte til min samtale med Nicolas Molder som jeg havde at føre den I know you wrote a whole book about this and this is a complex question But what is the short version of how uh, economic sanctions were established as a tool of war and as a tool of international politics? Yeah, sure. So I should start probably by saying a little bit about those origins in the early 20th century, which is where I begin the book also. And one thing that's useful for everyone to realize is that in the early 20th century, the world was already in many ways really remarkably globalized in economic and financial terms different countries and continents were very interdependent. So there was a lot of trade, a lot of finance, crossing borders, lots of travel as well. And in this world, the First World War broke out in 1914. And it was precisely the fact that interdependence was so real in that world that made the victors of the First World War think that if they could find a way to maybe exploit these links between countries, they could ensure peace 
if you were to be fully uh, severed from those links, it would be a very damaging thing. And to try uh, and, and instrumentalize that, they came up with this tool of sanctions. And this was inspired by the uh, weapon of war that they used uh, of blockade in the war itself. And sanctions are basically the peacetime version of a wartime blockade. That was the original thought behind it. You write in the book about the normalization of sanctions as something that we've gotten used to and they're widely used throughout the last part of the 20th century and and today. And I think we often tend to think of, at least here in Denmark, to think of sanctions as a kind of almost humanitarian alternative to warfare, as a way of doing something to our enemies that is instead of, of going to war, against them. But then when you go back and look at the debate about these uh, sanctions, just after the First World War, Woodrow Wilson called it something more tremendous than war. And and Winston Churchill, he was even, he called it repugnant to the British nation to inflict such damage on women and children and and, and poor people. Was it part of the, your motivation for writing the book to show us how, how it was born out of war and how it came with tremendous suffering from the very beginning. Definitely uh, to recover that uh, uh, was one of the aims of the book. But I think as historians, we're also always just interested in showing how things that we today accept as very normal actually used to be quite different or are much more recent inventions than we like to think. They're not that old. They actually only emerged, in this case, sanctions about 100 years ago. And um, the contrast between this world of sanctions that was created in the aftermath of World War One that we still live in today. And what came before is quite striking. If you think about what people actually considered to constitute war and peace. So in the 19th century, the era of Napoleon and the Crimean War and uh, the Franco-Prussian War, these sorts of conflicts were remarkably clearly organized. They had a very clear beginning, uh, a period of fighting after countries openly declared war on each other. And when you declared war, you acquired certain rights as a belligerent. You could also put serious pressure on civilians. You could uh, starve, besiege cities. So you could target civilians and ordinary society, but only after declaring war. And then your opponent could also fight back, right? You were in a state of war. And that ended when there was some outcome of a battle that was decisive, or the two countries found some kind of peace agreement and they uh, agreed on a peace treaty. Then the state of war would end. And you would also no longer be allowed to uh, keep sieges up or blockades or these sorts of things. So there was a very clear distinction between the state of war and the state of peace. War could be very ruthless uh, as long as the state of war obtained. But once it ended, things were back to normal and uh, civil society, the private economy, the private sector should have unrestricted access and interaction. And uh, in some 19th century wars, actually, they allowed even the private sector a contract and property rights to continue to exist. So in, in 1870, for example, there are people in uh, Prussia who had investments in France and the French government, even when France and Prussia are fighting between Bismarck and Napoleon III, they don't even expropriate their property. They just allow them to keep getting interest on their bonds and investments. So this is a remarkably kind of civilized, clear cuts law and rule-bound way of waging war. And when you then think about what sanctions do, they totally uh, change that setup. So when you make sanctions, and this is what happened after World War I, a peacetime instrument, you are able to continue putting this warlike pressure on civilians, even 
after a war has ended, and that happened in the First World War. So there was an armistice in November 1918, uh, as is well known. That's when the First World War officially ended in the field. But this blockade of the Allies against Central Europe, against Germany and Austria-Hungary, still continued for several months to make Germany sign the Versailles Treaty. And this really changed what people thought counted as war and peace, because they continued to use this wartime policy, even though there was no longer an active conflict. So you can start to see this gray area develop, and sanctions are basically a kind of gray zone form uh, of the use of force uh, or of warfare. And this also, and that's what a large part of the book is about, explains why they're so controversial, because when you redefine what counts as war and what counts as peace, and you do things that used to be associated with the state of war, but now you do them and say, no, no, we're not at war, you know, and also you can't fight back because we're not at war, <laughs> then this is something that countries don't accept very easily, and they will try and find ways of hitting back. It's very controversial. They might lash out, and it destabilizes some of the international norms in the system. So it took quite a while for this new understanding of sanctions as part of peace and no longer part of war to uh, emerge and to crystallize. As you say, it was controversial and you reconstruct a lot of the discussions at the time, which is highly enlightening to, to read today. How were the ideological positions? It's not a clear cut leftist were in favor of sanctions, right? People were against it. And it's not even liberals were saying, well, economics should be a separate realm and others were saying, no, we should use it. How would you describe the ideological cleavage around sanctions at the time? It's really interesting because it's this new development of basically redefining the boundary between war and peace, shifting it. And as a result, you get, like you were saying, both people on the left and on the right on both sides of sanctions, both in favor and against. So in favor, you find people who broadly describe themselves as progressives. They want to find a new method to stop war that isn't war itself, but that has some of the punch, some of the power of war. And for them, sanctions were an important advance. And it's also important to give them some credit, right? Because it was important to try and find some way of settling disputes that did not involve a world war like World War One. So we, I think, should be charitable to them. They were looking for, for a new way of doing it, and, and they deserve to get a chance. However, uh, they also uh, were pretty ruthless in how they thought about this. And this also explains some of the opponents. So you had some groups that opposed them, for example, feminists, who said uh, women and children should not be a target of uh, weapons of war or of blockades. And um, we demand a humanitarian exemption right, from being considered a target. And interestingly, you then also get conservatives. So people who are basically generals and military people uh, who are invested in keeping war uh, structured along these old 19th century lines. So in Britain, like what you mentioned, Churchill, of course, was a conservative. And that's not because Churchill was a great feminist or because <laughs> he was very you know, uh, humanitarian. Of course, he uh, also presided over the famine in India in World War II. So he was uh, pretty... Uh, careless uh, and, and could be extremely harsh when it came to the lives of people who were not British. Um, so it's not because he was a, a kind of, uh, you know, incredibly noble humanitarian himself, but it is actually, I think, because he was wedded as someone who had been a soldier when he was young to a very old fashioned model of war, which was male dominated, only men fight. They do it as professionals. It's something that happens in the field, in an official setting where there's a declared state of war and women and children aren't even part of this game. They're not part of politics. They're not part of the elite. They're not part of the people, the serious people who do war. So they should be kept out of it. So it, it strikes us now as a progressive position, but actually it's a very old fashioned one. 
But that shows that sanctions were really new and that they kind of changed what people thought was uh, was good and bad also about the ethics of, of war. There are many great characters in the book. One of them is really interesting is, is this conservative British diplomat, Robert Cecil. Uh, and there's a handwritten letter, I think, where, where he's, he's, he's being warned that it would cause mass starvation. And then you see he's, no, this is a part, and you see his notes in the fringes where he says, well, actually there is no alternative or we should just live with it. With this sanctions regime, does there also follow a tolerance of causing enormous uh, suffering among civilians? Mm-hmm. I think so. And and that's also what explains why this sanctions as a form of uh, economic war against civilians became accepted, because it they emerged in a period where there was also total war between societies mm. uh, and lots of military casualties in the field. So the civilians weren't the only people dying. There were lots and lots of people dying on the battlefield. And in comparison, it seemed, how bad can it be if if maybe a few tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of civilians die if millions of soldiers are dying in the field? So this is what starts to happen in these circumstances of total war. People become desensitized. And what previously was thought unthinkable now becomes actually seen as a better alternative. But it's only in relation to that really terrible bloodshed that uh, this form of economic war on civilians can come to seem as a more humane alternative. So it's it's a yeah it's a relative story, right? That when there's something even worse that we can compare <laughs> it with, then we can definitely say that okay, under the circumstances, this is less bad. I think in Denmark, we usually think of the League of Nations as a kind of precursor to the United Nations. So if you're progressive, you're kind of in favor of, of, of the League of Nations. And we know how important it was to American history that it wasn't approved in the Senate, that they could join the League of Nations. But it's also striking reading your book that the League of Nations is also a league of imperial powers, that these are the old empires and they have another way of seeing the rest of the world than than we have after the second world war how important is it that this is a league of empires uh, very important i think and whenever you hear the phrase league of nations now i think it's good mentally to substitute empires <laughs> for for nations just because yes um the the fact that they were and of course they are in in many ways the precursors to the united nations makes us think that liberal internationalism or the liberal international order as it existed in 1919 is uh, substantially the same as it is today but it was very different when it came to who actually was recognized as a full state as an equal member of internet of the international community and uh, this was a world in which britain and france joined this organization and got the protection of uh, this guarantee of territorial integrity. So the essential part of the League of Nations, which is also uh, there again in the United Nations Charter, is that all member states get their integrity of their territory protected. But that meant this global empire was protected, right? And anyone who would try and uh, break away from the empire or who would try and uh, other imperial powers trying to take over colonies all of this would constitute aggression and so the league of nations as an international organization would be there to protect the empire uh, of the countries that won world war one and this was one of the other reasons why there was so much controversy in the interwar period because germany uh, had to have seen its colonies taken away one of the back japan felt they hadn't had quite enough colonies yet italy was kind of felt it was left out so you get this sense that uh, for those countries they saw only the empire side and they thought well if this is a club of the empires why why 
don't we get to be in it? Uh, but Britain and France really wanted things to stay that way. Um, and it's also an important fact to realize uh, the British Empire, when we hear that phrase, we think of the 19th century and Queen Victoria, probably, and Rudyard Kipling and these sorts of uh, things. But the British Empire, in terms of territory, was at its largest extent ever in 1919. So after World War I, actually, when it acquired these uh, colonies from Germany after the end of World War I, that the British Empire never in history was bigger than right then, only uh, 103 years ago now. So uh, that's also useful to keep in mind. Yeah, so this normativity, when you look at it, just isolated, you think of it as a, you know, a sketch of a fairly liberal world order, but it's it's at an imperial height, actually, of, 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 of Great Britain. Uh, even There's an interesting critical point by John Maynard Keynes, and he's critical of one part of sanctions and approves of, of another way of, of uh, using economic warfare, if you should choose that term. How would you characterize his position? It's interesting because Keynes was also involved in the economic war uh, of the First World War, that, that aspect of it, but a different aspect than Cecil, who you mentioned. Cecil was the British minister of blockade, so it was his job to prevent goods, money, resources from going to Central Europe, to the, to the uh, Central Powers. Keynes was actually on the other side. He was involved in organizing the logistics and uh, basically going back and forth between the United States and Britain, making sure that there were enough ships to ferry troops and food around the world, making sure that there was enough uh, grain to feed uh, hungry populations. Um, so doing the logistics on that side, and that also explains quite a lot why his economic philosophy is always about the government providing more resources in the economy, right? It's just from, it, it's not just a, a theoretical position, it's from his own experience, he was, interested in mobilizing, making things available rather than uh, cutting off access to resources. And you see this in his uh, domestic economic philosophy about government stimulus. But interestingly, he also, and this is one of the things that I discovered while researching the book, he actually had a lot to say about uh, geopolitics and security. And he was consulted when the League of Nations was designing its sanctions mechanism and actually said, instead of focusing only on what he called the negative economic weapon. So the use of sanctions modeled on blockade to try and isolate the aggressor state. It's much more useful and much more supportive in the long run for the international order we are trying to defend to share the resources of the League of Nations of all the countries opposing the aggression and particularly channeling those resources, money, food, uh, weapons also, but particularly uh, money and, and economic resources to keep the economy going and reconstruct to the victim. So a country that suffers an invasion should get massive economic support from the entire League of Nations, the entire international community should put its material power behind it. And that way, the aggressor uh, simply will send a chance because it's the aggressor against the entire world. Um, but it's much easier to do that, he said, and ultimately more beneficial to the world to focus on mobilizing resources for the good than trying to deprive the bad side of resources. It's difficult to organize, and it also risks uh, escalation and all sorts of other problems. Yes, I thought that was so interesting reading the book that that his ideological position, which is well known, how it translated into a mm -hmm. geopolitical position at the time. It also appears that sanctions, they were that they were actually quite efficient in the 20s, that, that you actually had conflicts that were avoided because of the threat of, of, uh, of sanctions, not because not 
it seems to me that they're not very good at compelling people to do something that they don't want to do by themselves. And you see that even today, I think. But as a deterrence, how did they work in the 20s as a deterrence? So the reason that they could even hope that they would work as a deterrence sanctions was that they were associated with this memory of a terrible hunger blockade in World War I. And not many European countries wanted to, who were exposed to it, particularly in Central Europe, wanted to go through that again. And this, I think, is again why I mentioned that uh, we should also uh, give the liberal internationalists who designed sanctions some benefit of the doubt, because they were actually trying to do something to avoid a repetition of the World War. And their hope was that simply threatening this would make people see sense, it would make uh, aggressive countries restrain themselves, and they wouldn't even have to impose it. And then you would get the best of both worlds because you would keep peace, no one would be harmed, and, and you would not have to employ soldiers uh, or starve people, but you simply had to threaten credibly that you would do this. So this was the hope of deterrence. And it actually did seem to work in the 1920s twice against small countries in the Balkans, uh, first against Yugoslavia, and then in 1925 against Greece. And these were both countries involved in short border wars. Uh, Yugoslavia was trying to take uh, territory in northern Albania. And when the League threatened sanctions, immediately you could see effects on financial markets. So the exchange rate of the Yugoslav currency uh, collapses, and people start to worry that Yugoslavia is now going to be uh, totally blockaded. It's already uh, virtually um, yeah, difficult to access uh, the sea you know, from the Adriatic, so it's easy to blockade them. And this uh, was enough to convince the government in Belgrade that they should you know, a a allow the League to settle the border, defuse the dispute, and come to a negotiated solution. And again, in Greece in 1925, they were in a border war with Bulgaria, uh, which is a very funny name. Uh, it's the War of the Stray Dog. So, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty evocative how uh, some stray dog on one side of the border uh, led to the border guards starting to shoot. And then before you know it, it escalated. But this was a cause for concern because the First World War itself began with a, a shots fired in the Balkans, right, with the assassination of uh, Franz Ferdinand. So it was important that they could show that they had some instrument to address this really early before it got to out of control. And uh, this is what this threat of sanctions there also managed. So there were at least two cases in the 1920s where deterrence worked, but both times it was against small countries. Yeah. It was very early on in the crisis, within one or two weeks. So there was a very quick response time. And you could really see also that the effect of it on the behavior of the targets was quick. So I think that that shows that successful sanctions uh, oftentimes work best as a threat, but only when they're really strong credible, and you are also likely to then see results quickly. If you don't see results from sanctions quickly, then they're likely not to work. So I think it's both acting and having the response quickly that are signs of success. And if not, then, then you're in for a longer, uh, more difficult use of sanctions. The threat of sanctions was also part of the mindset of several of the authoritarian leaders in the, in the 30s. I do see they were preparing for sanctions and sometimes could even use it to justify Italy the, um, taking some, some part of Albania to get some oil there. And, and it, I, I was not aware to what extent that the threat of sanctions kind of, I wouldn't say justified, but just it's kind of it, some of the authoritarian moves were response to, to the th sanctions that they were anticipating. How, how is that link between a liberal sanctions regime and, and countries becoming more authoritarian. I know it's a very com complex analysis, but it's a very interesting connection as well. Yeah, so 
One, uh, this actually, it helps to go back to the point that you raised earlier, which is that the League of Nations was a League of Empires, but the entire world was imperial still in the 1920s and 30s. And we forget about this, but this imperial mindset is important because it's a mindset about controlling resources within your own territory. And if you don't have them, then you should try and obtain them either by having a company or a corporation that will be active in a territory, like an oil company, or preferably uh, annex the territory make some argument that the local population is not mature enough to govern themselves and then take it over. And this is how imperialism always worked. And this is also what you very much saw uh, Italy uh, put forward as an argument with Ethiopia in 1935. The Ethiopians are not mature enough. They still practice slavery. They're not civilized. We are going to civilize them. But of course, for Italy, this was also the hope that they could become this breadbasket like the Roman Empire using Egypt, uh, you know, that they could uh, build up a kind of colonial territory in uh, the Horn of Africa, very fertile. And uh, Japan had the same with Manchuria in East Asia. So that was the mindset. And this existed already uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. But when you add sanctions to this, then there is one option, which is what we just discussed, the deterrence option. You face the threat of sanctions and you decide this is not worth my trouble, this conquest. I'm going to just accept the demands of the League of Nations, play by the rules. I'm too small. I'm Greece. I'm Yugoslavia. I will accept this order and try and uh, improve my prosperity through trade. But if you're a medium-sized power, you have a large army, you have this older imperial, these ambitions in in your neighborhood, and these territories potentially give you resources that make you self-sufficient, then it becomes quite tempting to say, I'm not going to back down from the sanctions. I'm actually going to try and take more territory so that even when people threaten sanctions, it won't affect us. And so this is the negative spiral between sanctions, threats in the 30s, beginning to stimulate more and more this pre-existing uh, but not yet fully developed agenda for autarky, for self-sufficiency. And uh, this is one of the big unintended consequences of the League of Nations. And uh, it was very clearly uh, happening in the uh, mid and late 1930s that the more uh, this threat of sanctions and of blockade hung over these countries, the more they became uh, convinced that they had to secure resources, grain, iron ore, coal, oil at any cost, um, and this is indeed, actually, if you look at the reason that Japan goes to war in uh, Southeast Asia in 1941, it's because they have an oil embargo against them um, that the United States, uh, Britain, and the Netherlands impose. And so Japan cannot get any more oil. It's an island nation. It has no resources uh, of that kind, of, uh, energy resources, really, within its own borders. And that's when the Japanese high command decides, we don't even think we're going to win this war, but at least we hope that we can get those resources for uh, the, in, in the short term. And that's why they attack in all of Southeast Asia, Pearl Harbor. Uh, so they, the, the sanctions and autarky spiral became a really escalatory and, and it fed into the origins of World War II. Yeah, so this mechanism that was, and you know, history is full of unintended consequences. That is history. Mm-hmm. So I'm not blaming the sanctionists for, for the Second World War, but this mechanism that was intended to avoid or replace or transcend great power rivalry actually ended up accelerating some authoritarian tendencies and and even accelerated the rush towards the war. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the right way to put it, right? The sanctions are not responsible for the Second World War. There were many important grievances that were much more important, but they did uh, determine some of the timing and some of the uh, escalation dynamics by which the war that was quite likely to have broken out 
nonetheless uh, started at the point when it did. And uh, we could we just know this because we have records of uh, Italy, Germany and Japan showing roughly when they were planning to be ready for war. And in most cases, they had to go to war before they were ready. So this was because they felt that they had to act quickly. And there was something uh, driving them towards a decision for war sooner rather than later. And uh, Christopher Clark, the uh, Australian historian at Cambridge, uh, who wrote this great book, The Sleepwalkers, about the origins of World War One, he has a great phrase, uh, temporal claustrophobia. It's when you feel that time is like a room with the walls uh, closing in on you. And I think that that's a good way of... Uh, characterizing this mindset of di dictators in the 1930s. They felt that time was not on their side and sanctions were one of the things that would make the clock start running uh, before which their entire society would run out of food and energy and resources and collapse, they feared, because that's kind of what had happened in the First World War. Um, and then the final other thing that is important to mention here is that when we think of authoritarian regimes, we like to think that they're totally controlled from the top down by a dictator. But actually, there are always very complex uh, factions in every regime, right? There are different groups. They uh, compete for the favor of the leadership. But within the elite and the leadership, there are different orientations, different agendas. And usually, and in the 1930s, this was definitely the case, there were more outward looking, more international sides of these regimes and more inward looking, more nationalist sides, uh, uh, factions in, in these uh, regimes. And sanctions, unintentionally, but nonetheless, this was their effect, became a very powerful argument for the nationalist side yeah. to win the internal debate within these governments against the more liberal international oriented side um, and say, we have nothing to gain from uh, participating in this world economy if uh, we are threatened with being cut off from its resources at any moment if we do anything that Britain and France do not like. So this was basically, uh, an, internally speaking, they gave the nationalist side a very powerful argument that these countries should disengage, try and become self-sufficient. Um, so that's also why I think how we can think of this today, right? Um, the, there, there are always different factions and uh, you can tip the balance between one faction or the other uh, by uh, putting forward certain agendas and policies rather than others. Yes, because this is where I would jump to the present as well, because reading your book, you get the feeling, well, sanctions, they work with small aims against small countries, but with big and unclear aims against big countries, they tend to produce outcomes that you don't really want to achieve by these sanctions. And some of the parallels uh, that, that are vague and demonic, of course, between Russia and Japan, for instance, are quite frightening today. H how do you see the parallels between the sanctions imposed on great countries in the 30s and the sanctions that we are imposing against Russia today? Yeah, so, uh, well, I'll start with an optimistic uh, note, maybe, uh, on the comparison, because, of course, right, that, that's a comparison that has been uh, top of mind for many people. But uh, one of the things that made Japan so existentially threatened was that it had almost no resources in its own island uh, territory, which is one of the reasons why Japan had already been trying to colonize parts of East Asia, Manchuria, China, Taiwan, uh, Korea. So that's different from Russia. Russia is, uh, you know, has one eighth of the world's surface area under its control, very rich in natural resources, and the sanctions don't really threaten Russian food or energy. No matter what happens, there will be enough of those resources for Russia. Um, 
So I think that's one reason why probably the risk of military escalation today, I would say, is, is lower than in the 1930s. So that's good. Uh, I think one downside, one, one thing to worry about is that our world today is even more globalized economically than the world in the 1930s, right? So you have to remember that in the 1930s, this happened after the Great Depression had happened. So there was already a lot of economic nationalism, world trade had collapsed significantly, and the costs of becoming self-sufficient, of you know breaking away from the uh, liberal world economy were relatively low because there wasn't that much liberal world economy left. <laughs> and that's today very different because you know our world now is incredibly globalized as we can experience with the supply chains uh, crisis, uh, inflation being transmitted from one area to another, the lockdowns in China right now, uh, right Russian energy supplies to Europe, gas, oil. Um, so imposing sanctions on a country the size of Russia, uh, the 11th largest economy in the world, a G20 economy, it uh, has major economic spillover effects and the economic damage of uh, imposing sanctions on a large country today are much higher. And I think this is where the politics today, the, these debates we see, but should we go further? Can we do an oil embargo now? Or can we do a gas embargo soon? Where this becomes so um, intense and heated because the economic damage is there. It's real. It's undeniable when you're operating with sanctions against a country this size. And it means that you need to make a political argument for why these costs are worth bearing or find some way to offset the costs. And that's what, to my mind, politics is all about. It's about who's going to bear the burden, right? And how do you uh, do burden sharing and, and allocate costs and benefits, uh, basically? I think, I don't know how much uh, ground in history there is for this argument, but it's it's often, it's often heard here that, that you say, well, we impose these sanctions because we want the people to turn, you know, you want the people to turn against Putin, which is a very, very difficult task. Or you want the oligarchs to turn against him. You want them, all of a sudden, they can't send their daughters to Swiss and they must give up their summer house in, 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 in southern, southern France. How do you, how do you see the, 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 the effects on, on the, the Russian upper classes and the Russian people of these sanctions or the potential um, effects? Yeah, it's it's difficult, uh, more and more difficult, actually, to say that about things about that because they have started to hide the statistics, right, about what's happening to the economy. You also, uh, the polling is unreliable, so everything I'm going to say should be taken with a big grain of salt and admission that there's just a lot of uncertainty, but... It does seem like there was actually a quite spontaneous anti-war movement in the first few weeks of the war, and that now as the war has gone on, uh, a lot of the more liberal intelligentsia, the more uh, free-thinking uh, parts of Russian society are either uh, silenced or have been forced to emigrate. Many of them, of course, uh, have left. Uh, the, and, and that's a problem because that those are precisely the people that you want to be the backbone of a political opposition to Putin. So that's not great news. And uh, again, uh, it's, I think, evidence for the argument that if sanctions would have worked, you want there to be a very quick popular reaction against it immediately that the government cannot control And uh, now, however, the state propaganda channels, the TV have kicked in and they've just overpowered and out, uh, I guess, out broadcast any critical voices. You could still see it propping up here and there, but, you know, I mean, um, in Western societies, we have this problem too, right, of media bubbles uh, that people, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, and I think so that that's, it shouldn't surprise us that now a large part of the Russian population is in that nationalist propaganda media bubble um, and, and, and that that shapes their outlook. The oligarchs is also interesting because 
they had a lot of wealth uh, vulnerable to sanctions, to confiscation, to asset freezes. And in many ways, that's been one of the, I think, most uh, areas where you could do the most in the, in the least amount of time. So many, many uh, hundreds of billions now across uh, the Western world, the city of London, of course, but even places like the Cayman Islands, uh, the Channel Islands, Switzerland, uh, they're all part of this and they are confiscating large amounts of Russian assets. But the question is what that does to the internal thinking of people in the elite, right? If you were a very rich Russian person and you now no longer have access to your foreign wealth that, and you were not already living abroad, that means you're now in Russia with all your remaining wealth probably there, totally under the control of the Kremlin. If you say something or criticize it, you can get your own wealth there, remaining wealth confiscated. Um, and there's this kind of dark joke that I uh, heard going around uh, Russian circles where one oligarch approaches Putin and he says, I've lost four of my $5 billion in wealth due to sanctions. And uh, Putin turns to him and says, well, would you like to keep the remaining billion? And I think that's kind of the the dilemma that they find themselves in. They are now even more at the mercy of this autocratic regime at home. Uh, there are always rifts, right, uh, that you could potentially exploit, but it's it's difficult to see right now who would lead the opposition. And uh, it seems that Putin is also very paranoid about the possibility of this happening. And uh, yeah, then then the, the oligarchs that did have some connection to the West are now forced to choose if they choose for, uh, to go to the West and dissociate themselves, they automatically lose the ability really to influence events in Russia. If they stay there, they're kind of sort of along for the ride and who knows where that might end. So it's, I think, a, a pretty stark and not necessarily very helpful situation uh, for either the Russian population or the, the elite uh, in terms of uh, creating regime change. It's a point in your book that sanctions, they economic measures rarely work alone, that they should be part of diplomatic efforts, military military efforts. They should be part of a larger package and have some clear and, and uh, small criteria or small aims. Now we're in this situation where we're engaged in sanctions that we're not prepared for. You know, we just bumped into this. And I think we all thought the war would be over within a week. And we were imposing those sanctions as a kind of punishment. And now we're just part of economic warfare. So we're doing this, these sanctions and huge support for it so far, so far. I'm not sure they'll be in half a year. But the Ukrainians are, are on the battlefield and they will ultimately be negotiating a peace agreement. You know, we have this debate in Europe with Macron and Kua and uh, Schultz, who's going to, to negotiate the peace. But I think ultimately that we are doing a sanctions regime, but leaving it up to Zelensky to negotiate the peace. How do you see this, that, that these two means are, uh, are, are on two different hands? Yeah, so um, at the moment, uh, it's, it's clear that people, the initial enthusiasm and hope that there would be a quick end to the war because of the sanctions, which were really unprecedented in many ways, right? In terms of the size of the target Russia, in terms of how quickly they were imposed. People now realize that you actually uh, are still uh, yeah, hostage to, to the fortune of how the war will turn on the battlefield and that the sanctions are a more indirect long-term way of influencing those uh, events. And I should say, right, that I, I do think uh, I support sanctions on Russia, uh, not every single one in the way that it's happened, but I think you, the West could not let Putin get away with this. There was a need to do something and to impose uh, hold hold him accountable to some degree. Uh, so I, I I support that. Uh, and the position of the book on, on the whole is critical about sanctions. But in this case, I think it's such an open and clear cut case of aggression that you you cannot let this go 
unpunished. That being said, there are better and worse sanctions that you could impose. And I think what you always have to do is have a clear exit strategy, have a clear goal for what is the objective that we are aiming for. And on, on one hand, it's very uh, understandable to let Ukraine determine how far they want to go. But we also don't really know how what Ukraine would be capable of if they would be able to take back the territories that they lost in 2014, for example, how long that would take, if that would be sustainable for the world economy. There's a lot of pretty big questions that you basically delegate to the government in Kiev that way. So I think it can and should be a multilateral European, even transatlantic discussion. And uh, I understand, uh, morally speaking, the argument for putting it sort of in, in the hands of Kiev, but it does affect everyone else as well. And in the end, I think right, uh, all of us will continue to be uh, countries bordering Russia. So we need to figure out what relationship do we want to have with Russia? Uh, is there anything that can be salvaged? If not, then how are we going to structure our near abroad, our Eastern European uh, member states and, and the near abroad? And those are difficult questions that I have heard pretty few people give a good answer to, because right now we're still in kind of punishment mode, uh, all out war. and. I do think that the resistance of the Ukrainian army has been very impressive. The intelligence sharing between the West and the Ukrainians, I think, has been very effective and probably one of the most underrated aspects of this war, that massive amounts of electronic and signals interception have been put at the disposal of the Ukrainian army, allowing them to fight uh, at a much more precise uh, and accurate and uh, well-informed level than they otherwise would. Um, but yeah, ultimately, right, uh, what's the kind of political reality long run that we want to achieve? And if we cannot get regime change in Russia, how are we going to at least moderately stabilize things? Uh, that's, I think, what it is worth think, starting to think about now. And we should have probably already started to think about that. So that's, I think, the where it's, it's easy to enter the sanctions. It's much more difficult to leave them and to figure out what sort of demands do we want to tie to them. I just saw that Henry Kissinger at Davos uh, today has been uh, making people very angry by saying Ukraine should probably give up some of its territory in peace negotiations in order to have a ceasefire with basically the border as it was uh, before February 24 as the starting point. I don't really have any strong views on that, but I, I think it, at least um, looking ahead is important and not looking only two weeks ahead every single time, but thinking, particularly as Europeans, I'm, I'm Dutch, uh, right, like Denmark, a small uh, a, a country also with a history of neutrality in the past, but now an Atlantis country. We do need to think also long run about this relationship and also make sure that we don't make the wrong decisions uh, because we are under a lot of pressure. So it was a bad decision to get our gas from Gazprom with 20-year uh, <laughs> contracts. That was a very bad idea. However, it's also a bad idea to now sign 20-year-long contracts with American LNG providers <laughs> from uh, the uh, who are in Texas and Louisiana, who are people who support Donald Trump in camp with campaign donations. That's the, the industry that supported um, uh, the American Republican rights. And so it seems to me we should also not make ourselves dependent on American gas imports now, right? So let's think long run. And uh, I think a green energy solution here is obviously the way to guarantee some sort of political independence for Europe. But uh, let's try and get it right this time and not um, yeah, make, make too many quick decisions. One last question. There's so many questions I'd like to ask you, but we have just time one more. It is a point in your book that it was we tend to think of Lyndon Lease, the Lyndon Lease program, in with uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's words, that this was a battle for democracy against authoritarianism. And I think this 
moral worldview has kind of passed from generation to generation. And then you say in the book, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. This was not democracies against autocracies. We see the same thing today that Joe Biden is saying, well, this is uh, autocracy against democracy and this is democracy on, on the battlefield. What do you think of this way of framing the war and the conflict, of seeing the, what is obviously not democracies against autocracies? What, what mm -hmm. do you think of, of this way of seeing it? I mean, it's first of all, I should probably say it's an understandable way of framing it, right? Because the last 10 years have not been a great time for liberal democracy. <laughs> so <laughs> I understand that there's a lot of excitement in the West for some conflict that could reinvigorate liberalism and could give some new purpose and meaning and positive content to it. And certainly, right, the way that the Ukrainians, for example, see Europe as part of their future is something that I think should give all of us uh, more optimism about the fact that the European Union still stands for something meaningful too, if you think about how that looks from, from their end. So that's, that's understandable. But, you know, I, I think uh, a large part of the rhetoric is meant for uh, domestic political consumption, and particularly in the United States, right? They have a long tradition of wanting to put themselves on the right side of history. And ironing out, let's say, some of the less convenient parts of it. Um, one major one right now is obviously right that Biden is going to uh, Saudi Arabia and countries like that to try and beg uh, an incredibly repressive theocracy that's also waging a terrible war in Yemen to pump more oil. <laughs> uh, so that's not only not democracies that are part of this uh, alliance, it's, it's autocracies and theocracies, but it also involves overlooking a lot of conflicts that if we care about human rights and humanitarian goals, we should be caring about, like the war in Yemen, that we, I think, have not uh, paid sufficient attention to. So it's very selective in that sense. Um, then the other thing, however, is I think that there is also a degree to which it is important to think about global collective problems as requiring this preparedness to put some uh, politics and values on the side. And I think this is just the key to successful diplomacy. It's very difficult to accept, and uh, but it's necessary if we're going to deal with climate change. And it's also right now you can see necessary, right, even to stabilize energy prices for hundreds of millions of poor people around the world. It's necessary probably to loosen sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, not because we like those regimes, but simply because that will ease some of these pressures. And um, that too, right? The Biden administration and the Trump administration and Americans have been really vocal about the fact that they think Maduro is a, is a terrible tyrant. And now all of a sudden they have to go sort of, you know, hand in hat towards him to ask him to pump more oil and uh, say Chevron can do business with you again. So there's a lot, there's what's said and then there's what's actually done. And uh, as an economic historian, I like to look at the latter. Uh, and I think that's always a, a good thing when you get too overwhelmed by the news. Look at what people do rather than what they say. Well, we'll keep that in mind. And thank you so much, Nicholas Mulder, for taking your time. I hope we get the opportunity to see you and talk to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rona. Great conversation. Det var min samtale med Nicholas Mulder, og jeg gentager, at hans bog hedder The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of War. Den kan man bestille hjem hos sine boghandlere, og jeg kan anbefale den som en fuldstændigt vidunderlig sommerferielæser, og jeg kan anbefale, at man gør det gennem sin boghandel, så man ikke støtter Amazon, men bliver ved med at bevare boghandlere i vores lokalsamfund, som vi alle sammen er afhængige af. I næste uge skal vi også tale om krigen, men vi skal tale om et helt andet aspekt af krigen. Sverige har nemlig inden for de seneste uger 
opgivet 200 års neutralitet. Det, der har gjort Sverige til en forsvarspolitisk fuldstændigt enestående nation, har de opgivet, og det har de gjort uden større diskussion, som konsekvens af, at Finland har valgt at søge om optagelse i NATO, og som konsekvens af Putins invasion af Ukraine. Jeg taler i den forbindelse med den helt fantastiske svenske historiker Henrik Berggren, som har skrevet den store autoriserede biografi om Olof Palme, har skrevet bøger om Sverige under 2. verdenskrig og skrevet det moderne Sveriges historie. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak til jer for at lytte med.